scripture reading today comes from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they got nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciples whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. In Eastertide, in the season of Easter, we are going through our sermon series entitled He is Risen, looking at the uh, various uh, appearances of Jesus to his disciples after his death and resurrection. And we're doing this because we need to be reminded constantly, constantly, that what we know of life and how we approach it and how others approach uh, us and who we are, uh, we need to be reminded that um, it goes a lot deeper than how they approach us. That our lives, as I've said, are not one-dimensional, but they're multi-dimensional. They're deep, they're ebbing, and they're flowing uh, I was reading a book this week I finished on Friday um, from one of my favorite authors, Frederick Bachman, and he opens the book by telling you that there are some deaths that are going to happen. And a few deaths happen throughout the book, but you know that these are not the deaths that he's talking about. Finally, when he gets to the person who, um, the young man who um, ends up uh, going and, and um, killing some people, he uh, does so and kind of steps back and begins to tell the story 
of the full story, the depth of who this guy is, almost, almost, so that you have some sympathy for him as well, even when you know what he's about to do. It's a well-rounded story because it shows that it's not just he's not just a one-dimensional person. He's just not hell-bent on causing pain and suffering in this world. But he is a full person, and there is some um, life and vengeance that he is going after as well. What happens, though, is under the banner of he is risen, we see that vengeance, revenge, death, destruction is destroyed, can be destroyed by the death and therefore resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. We are well-rounded individuals. We are full people who have a deep story to tell and one that God is telling in us as well. This morning, we're looking at John 21, as Brendan just read, and the resurrection breakfast that Jesus has with his disciples. The third appearance, as John tells us, John has an interesting number count. If you go back and look at the appearances that have happened already, you might count four, but there's always some discrepancies of how um, people counted differently than maybe we do now. Today, whatever, it's fine. Here's the question I have for you. Have you ever received unsolicited advice? <laughs> ah, kind of nervous, angry laughter, right? Yeah. Have you ever given it? I didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't ask you, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> have you ever been asked to do something different than how you've always done it? Yeah. Yeah. This happens all the time to us. Sometimes... We go, oh, okay, that's, that's not bad advice. Other times we um, kind of sarcastically thank the person and move on with our lives. Um, we, uh, and sometimes we put ourselves in a situation where we receive advice um, even though we weren't expecting it. Um, that happened to me this week. Uh, I am in uh, physical therapy, as you all know, um, and I kind of brought it up to my uh, doctor that it feels like one leg might be a little longer than the other, and it felt a little more noticeable this week. I know I have, like, slight, very slight scoliosis, but no one's ever really addressed it before. And she's like, okay, well, let's look at a few things. Um, she uh, looked, she was like, yeah, I think maybe, maybe your left leg's a little shorter um, than your right. Um, let's, let's try something out. Um, let me give you a three millimeter lift that you can put in your shoe um, and see if that, that evens you out. Um, let me know how that feels. Um, I drove home. As I was driving home, I saw Stacy and Joshua heading towards the park, and um, she had relayed some things that made her feel old earlier in the week. And so I relayed how this made me feel old uh, in uh, receiving a shoe lift. Uh, and she said, well, maybe this is the cause of your chronic back pain. Maybe this is something that's just gone undiagnosed your entire life, and now you're needing to take care of it. Um, but as I wore the lift uh, that day <laughs> and the next day, um, I just really felt an overwhelming sense of, um, I don't like this. I don't like being told that one leg is longer than the other or one leg is shorter than the other. Um, I'm not sure I like how it feels. It did, um, you know, adjust my whole body, but maybe my body's been out of whack the whole time anyway. I don't know, but it's changed and it's different and it kind of hurts. And I'm not sure I like receiving this 
advice, this diagnosis. It's so easy to turn back to our old ways on things like this. Um, you might be able to guess, I don't have the lift in today. <laughs> and I didn't wear it yesterday. And I don't know if I feel better or worse because of it. And I'm sure it's still something that I would have to get used to. But it's so easy to go back to the ways that we've always done things. I think when we're presented with a new way of living, it can often be daunting. We doubt the reality of it. Do I really need this three millimeters? Is three millimeters really going to make a difference in my life? Is this really going to restore us to health and to wholeness? Is this really the root cause of my back pain? Maybe, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm still undecided on this. But when we are called to new life, when we are called to resurrection life, we have the same experiences. Is this really something that's going to change who I am? I feel like maybe I'm going to receive more unsolicited advice or be told that I needed to do things different anyway. It's so easy to go back to the way that we've always done things because it's not only that we're acculturated to it or we're, we're used to it, but we're acculturated to it. It's, it's the water that we live in is that death is the reality of all things, and it is, but here in the person of Jesus Christ, we have resurrection life coming for us despite facing death. See, in Jesus, we get caught up in a whole new way of living, and it's characterized by one particular term, grace. Grace. We're going to come to that in a little bit, but we have to get there, because what happens is in the opening scene, we have uh, this uh, declaration of John that Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, and it just he just kind of says, like, hey, these are all the guys, and they're sitting around, and Peter's like, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I love, I just love like, hey, this is what this is what I'm gonna do. At first, I read it as like, I gotta escape. I gotta go get out of here. Like, I just gotta go do something. And that is a little bit of Peter. He does have to just go do something. But he's returning to his occupation. This is what he's always known to do: is to go and fish, and how he's earned his living. They've been told that God has that Jesus has a a. Um, something new for them, but it hasn't fully been inaugurated for them at this point. And so they return to their pre-resurrection living. It's familiar, it's easy, it's known, and we so often return to what we know. It's what would have been expected of them, not just to sit around all day, but to go and work. That is what the world, how the world operates. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, and neighbor recently, and we were talking about the show Succession. Does anybody watch Succession on HBO? Um, it is basically um, a uh, dramatization of the uh, Rupert Murdoch family and this big media tycoon, and as in the name of it, it is who's going to take over the company. And there's um, various children who are always scheming on how they are going to be the next person to take over this multi-billion dollar company. And what we talked about is um, how this is how the world operates. Like you see it play out in this show, succession of people always scheming behind the scenes, how to get um, revenge back to, from one of their siblings, how to finally just nail their dad to the wall so that he will give over the company. They, bond, they bind, bind um, what, come together, bind together, uh, to go together to their dad to try to get the company away from them. But in some way, he just always has the upper hand from them. This 
is how the world operates. And we look at things like this and we go, ooh, revenge. It feels so good to have revenge on these people. Fantasies are wonderful disconnects of, from reality that we can play out the scenario how we want it to go and how we envision it going so that we can take a piece of flesh that has been taken from us. It's so easy to take part in that, to play that game, because it's how the world operates, to go back to what is expected of us. Sometimes it's the only way we're going to get noticed. Sometimes it's the only way we're going to get justice or get even or get revenge. But this only perpetuates it. It's so hard not to do this because it's the air we breathe. It's what's promoted. It's what's celebrated in this world. A friend of mine read uh, uh, an article and sent it on to me um, about narcissism in the church. Uh, we don't like to talk about narcissism in the church and amongst pastors, but um, I got to tell you, it's, it's pretty rampant. Um, any guy my age uh, who has worked for another pastor has experienced some level of narcissistic behavior from that other person. Now, there's an, an aspect of um, narcissism that's not bad, but when you get into narcissistic um, personality disorder, that's diagnosable at that point. So there's a spectrum to it. And this article says, like, while we value humility and we uphold that as a value in our church communities, what we continually reward is narcissism. And so you may see someone enter in to the pastorate really, truly wanting to um, uh, glorify God, to um, serve the people of God, to be that pastor that loves and serves his people, but because of the way the world operates, he's rewarded when he's narcissistic. And so the churches grow, they begin to um, worship the, the almighty number rather than um, our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it creates a culture where narcissism is rewarded. And I, it'd be easy to fault the pastor or the church in doing that, but I think it's just it's finding the rhythm, the current in which we live in. This is the world that we live in. It's so easy to operate just like they do. But what do we see the results are? When Peter and his disciples go out fishing, they fish all night, and they catch nothing. It's a very key term, nothing, that kind of turns the story. See, in resurrection life, it's always the result of playing by the world's rules that nothing happens, that failure comes when we are trying to live resurrection life, but we go about doing it in the way that the world operates. But this is a wonderful backdrop for God's work with nothing to stand in the way. And Jesus appears at the dawn, the break of day on the beach, and he meets the disciples where they are. I think part of the juxta, or not the juxtaposition, but the, the pairing of Jesus appearing at the de- daybreak is the promise of a new day being able to start. It reminds me of Lamentations 3. In the very middle of this, this um, very short chat, uh, book that Jeremiah is, is preaching and lamenting of all the pain and sadness and destruction of Israel that's going around, it centers around these two verses. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jesus shows up. He doesn't show up because they're doing a ministry job. They're out fishing in an everyday occupation. Jesus isn't concerned whether you're into a professional ministry, whether you're doing something holy, but he's there in the ordinary. But whenever Jesus shows up, this transforms the ordinary into the holy. He allows our works to become holy. And he asks them a question. Did you catch anything? This is kind of a fisherman's favorite question or least favorite question, depending on how it's gone. And the grammar of how Jesus asks the question kind of assumes they haven't caught anything. Um, this is like when, when Nick and I go to Decker's and we see somebody coming off the water. It's just one of the hardest places to fish. There's big, beautiful fish there, but they're smart and they won't catch anything um, I ever throw at them. And it's like I, you see somebody else, you're like, did you catch anything? You're kind of hoping they say no to to share in your misery. Jesus assumes a negative response, and that's what he gets. What he's really asking them is, how are you guys doing? What's going on? He assumes, though, that they're not doing well. And then he gives a bit of unsolicited advice. Cast your nets on the other side. Such a hard thing to be told how to do something. It's not like they probably hadn't cast their nets on that side of the boat anyway. They'd been out there all night, and now this random dude shows up to tell us what to do. It's really saying, I have an idea. Try it my way. There's some, some kind of code, some behind-the-scenes things happening here. They're on the Sea of Tiberias where a number of Jesus' well-known revelations have come. He's fed the 5,000 there. He's walked on water. He's called himself the bread of life. And when suddenly they have a full net of fish, the disciple that Jesus loves, we assume, um, is John, the storyteller himself, exclaims to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. And in pure, impulsive, Peter action-like fashion, he throws his clothes on, jumps overboard, and swims 100 yards to Jesus. I don't swim 100 yards. That's very impressive to me. But the other, and the other disciples drag their net um, and the boat to shore. Thanks a lot, Peter. I'm sure they're thinking, there he goes again. What did the disciples do to get such a great catch they followed jesus they didn't earn it they listened to him and this is what grace is so hard to live in the realm of grace i think it's an easy concept to define grace is undeserved favor uh, we use the word over and over again we've used it we've sang it and um, we're singing it in three of our four songs today uh, we mentioned it several times uh, throughout our worship service already, but and we can use it so easily and so quickly, but it's so hard to live there. Nothing else works in this life by grace. None of our other relationships, none of our other work things, none of our other endeavors is grace Filled. Even a marriage relationship with Jesus says, is supposed to be the embodiment of my love for my people. It should be something that is grace-filled. It is so often not. We find ourselves stuck because we are not accustomed to the rhythms of grace. So we do what we know. We work harder. It's a meritocracy that we're uh, working in. Like, you've got to earn it. We're going to dangle a carrot out in front of our people, or we have carrots dangled out in front of us, just a little bit more, just a little bit harder. 
We pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We suck it up. Everybody has pain in their lives. Get over your pain. Just deal with it. There's no grace there. We might retreat when we're faced with it. We anesthetize. We numb ourselves. We escape through substances or Netflix or whatever it may be. Or we hide. We can either hide and remove ourselves from the situation, or we can hide by faking it till we make it, right? But grace rewards failure. Grace rewards the undeserved. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay. (laughs) Get your Robux. This is an illustration. (laughs) Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, when everything in the world is taken away from you, when you have failed and have nothing, you still have me. There's nothing that we bring to Jesus. It's all grace. It's all Jesus. But it's a hard place to get used to being. Marcus Mumford, um, we were look, listening to Mumford and Sons this morning. Um, in his self-titled uh, album, he starts out with a song that is um, just, it's about his own abuse that he uh, faced in his life. And the first line of the very next song is, and where do we go from here? The song's entitled Grace. It's gritty. It's raw. It's this guttural song, which is not how we usually think of grace. It's almost as if he's screaming and begging and crying out that grace would come in this moment. And he sings these words. I'm fine. It's all right. Do I sound like a liar? (laughs) Just give it time. Just give it time. But I'm still trying. Still trying. uh, Still getting used to this place. And I don't know if I'm ever going to get used to this. Grace like a river. Grace like a river. Grace like a river. It takes time to get used to grace. It it takes time to get used to living in this place that we bring nothing but that we receive everything. It takes time for the disciples to get to shore. When they finally do, not with Peter's help, of course, There's a charcoal fire going with fish already on it. Where do they come from? And bread. And Jesus invites them, bring some of the fish you've caught. In other words, I'd I'd like to use what you have as well. It's not that Jesus, Jesus didn't catch the fish with the disciples. He already had fish on the fire. But he wants to use what they, at his instruction, have caught. And Peter, in his Peter fashion, 
runs over and gets the fish, all 153 of them. There's a curious, there's like kind of a, a, a debate. There's a bunch of theories about some of the details in this story and why 153 fish. It's the number of fish species they thought it was. It's the number of people that were in uh, John's uh, community. It's this and that kind of a thing. But what I like to think of it, and this is not far out, is that there's so many details to the story because God is concerned with the details of our lives. God is concerned with being caught up in who we are. There is no detail too small that he doesn't want to be a part of. When Jesus says, you've caught, it's directed at all of the seven disciples present, not just Peter, even though he's the, he's the go-getter, the one who's doing the, the thing. There's something about the disciples' work that happens together at the behest of Jesus that most fully affects the power of God. The church is not the pastor. We all together, the seven or so of us here, right, the 25 or so of us that come together, that are Christ's body, his presence in this place, and that when we come together, we live in the grace that God has for us. And again, it takes, it takes effort takes eating together. Jesus invites them, come have breakfast with me. Let's, let's have a meal together. It's this invitation to a meal that the disciples become sure, even in the midst of doubt, that this is the Lord. Nobody dares ask him. I just love that. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to ask him. You're not going to, nobody ask him. It's, it's definitely Jesus. It's definitely Jesus. Jesus, as he does, he takes the bread and he gives it to them. This is shorthand for the Eucharistic motions that he goes through whenever he eats a meal. As we read in on the road to Emmaus last week, he took, he blessed, he broke, and he gave the bread to the disciples. That's, I'm sure, the process that he's going through here. He uses the first and the last verbs, take and give. Eugene Peterson has 22 pages on Eucharistic hospitality, so I'm going to read those to you now. No, I'm not going to do that. Can't even, I'm so ashamed I even made the joke like that. Um, <laughs> but he sums it up at the very end of this, um, this uh, chapter that he's written on this. He says, the first and last Eucharistic verbs, take and give, are terms of a generous exchange. Every table, kitchen table, picnic table, banquet table, is a place of giving and receiving. No one owns anything here. Everyone at the table shares a common need. All is grace. What is exchanged? Toil for rest. The earn it mentality for grace. Failure for Jesus. Meals in the ancient Near East were always places of rest. We've kind of gotten away from that, I feel like, a little bit. But they were always calls to sit and to uh, revel and relish in what God has done throughout the day and how he has provided. And here Jesus is asking his disciples to do that with him. One commentator said, Every worship service, ideally, is around a table and is directed to the Lord, toward the Lord's meal as the happy conclusion of the meeting. This resurrection breakfast of bread and fish both that which Jesus has already uh, prepared and those with which that have been provided um, through his instruction to the disciples remind us that Jesus wants us to participate with him in resurrection living. 
our meager offerings that he has provided, he multiplies. When we follow Jesus, he takes our nothingness, he blesses them, he breaks them, and he gives them back to us. He gives them back. He gives us back his self. All the previous miracles that John has told along the Sea of Tiberias, he writes in past tense. This is what happened. This one he writes in present tense so that we might find ourselves a place in this story, this resurrection life, this life of grace at this resurrection breakfast. It's tempting, and it always will be, to return to our normative ways of living. These will always result in toil and labor and failure. But if we subject ourselves to Jesus' resurrection, we also subject ourselves to his grace-filled life. In resurrection living, we are not permitted to be self-sufficient to do it the old ways, but this opens us up to a new life in the one who gives life abundantly. Will we ever get used to it? Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for how you love us, how you care for us, how you meet us where we are, whether it's in the midst of our toil, whether it's um, as we're facing failure, as we are facing um, the the temptation to, to go uh, back to our old ways, to go to the easy way of doing life. Lord, we pray that we would be able to receive your grace, that we would be able to have open hands with nothing in the way so that we may be able to receive the life that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Empower us by the Holy Spirit. Open our hearts, open our minds to you, and open our tables so that we may eat and feast with you and with one another. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.